we lived in Kenya um, for 34 years. We lived in a place called the Comoro Islands for a year and a half. Uh, I now go to a, another country I won't point to there, uh, working with uh, a Muslim population, teaching medical students and young doctors, uh, taking care of children primarily with hydrocephalus and spina bifida, uh, primarily with burn contractures and club feet and other orthopedic problems. Uh, the work with disabled children will open potentially great doors to anybody that enters it. And it will offer great challenges and will offer uh, some very uh, traumatic emotions at times. Uh, I was, as I said, a general surgeon. I had no business being in the work, surgical work with disabled children, but there was nobody else doing it. We'll talk more about that later. Now, I'm just going to make some unwelcome observations. Uh, sometimes you say the things that people don't want to hear, but uh, assuming that many of you are serious about a potential commitment to medical missions, some of you will marry the wrong spouse. I've got very bold in saying that. If God has called you to a profession, don't compromise it by picking the wrong person. Okay? Uh, your, your career or thing will distract you. Some people want to be the very, very best in their field, whether that be nursing or prosthetics or medicine or what have you. Uh, and it can distract you from the purpose you felt that God originally called you to. Some will become too valuable to their church, their family, or their community. And we've actually had people say that our church said, well, you offer so much to our church, we can't spare you to go and work abroad. And there will be plausible excuses. Uh, you'll find that more and more people who uh, come out expecting to be long-term committed missionaries will disappear within two years. Three to ten percent of those living in the developing world are disabled. Uh, Dr. Belcher, a guy in Uganda, used to tell me 10% in Uganda were disabled, one type or the other. Disabilities, there's approximately 1 billion people living in Africa. That means only 30 to 100 million are disabled. Now, that's an overwhelming. You gotta, it's, they ask Africans, how do you eat an elephant? They said one bite at a time. And in the realm of disabled children, how do you take care of disabled children? One at a time. And uh, you, you will find that many of these people will break your heart. Disabilities include all these different things that are listed up here, but they include also things like seizures and blindness and things like that. And when you tell somebody that you're, or you make the act of taking care of a disabled child, the moms will go out and tell somebody's here that can take care of disability. And you get the retarded, the seizure disorders, the blind, the deaf, and everybody else. And you just have to figure out what you can do. What are the possible implications? Uh, Bethany Kids at Kajabi Hospital opened in 2004. What was called Bethany Crippled Children's Center opened in 1998. Uh, these were all a first effort of taking care of disabled children. Uh, some of them originally in, in the main hospital there that wasn't particularly interested in disabled children. Uh, in 2006, a, a lady named Mercy, who was then about 55, joined our staff as our chaplain. She said, give us some, give us some people that we can dis make disciples, people to follow up on our new believers, people who can go out and uh, bring people back to our clinics. Now, Mercy has trained now 300 disciples. They know a bit about evangelism. They know a little bit about uh, disabled children. Some of them have disabled children. And they come together with us for about two and a half days a year and then follow up the kids. Uh, in 2010, I asked Mercy, I said, how many people are we seeing come to the Lord? She said, 5,000 approximately this year. The next year, 2011, she said 7,000. Now, this was not just Mercy herself. It was Mercy and her disciples. And she was very proud of them. About three years ago, I went back and I said, what's our total budget for spiritual work amongst our disabled kids? And I divided it by the number of people that uh, 
had come to the Lord that year. We figured it cost us $3.84 a person to see him come to the Lord. Now, I know of no church, and I, I, I don't know what this, I've never been in this church but once before. I don't know of any church that sees 7,000 people come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, these are, my wife always tells me, tell people where you're going because you'll lose them. So I'm going to tell you, who am I, what God has done, and what I would propose for the future. And obviously, uh, we don't talk too much about prosthetists, not a lot about nurses, but we're all part of a team. And I I really want to emphasize that. Who am I? Uh, When I was 13, I became a Christian in a little bitty church called the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church. Uh, A big Sunday, we might have 130 in our church. But they began having missionaries come through that church uh, from all over the world. And one of the things that, that fixed on this young mind was the need for disabled children and for the need for people with medical needs. And within a year, I had three ambitions. One was I wanted to be a doctor. Now, we had nobody in our family who was a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. My, what did I do wrong? Put it on. Okay. Thank you. My wife tells me how to dress, too. <laughs> I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't have anybody in the family that was a doctor. And that was always for somebody up there. I wanted to be a missionary, and I wanted to serve the Lord full-time, and I wanted to be an effective Christian, and I think that came out right. And uh, those were my ambitions in life, and God took about 10 years to get those in the right priorities. Uh, 1965, I married a young lady named Millie Babb, and Babb, and she, uh, as, as we told people in church the other day, we were once young. Believe it or not, guys, we were once young. And I, she, she, we were on the way to InterVarsity's missionary camp, and she stopped at a bus station with another lady and picked up three of us that were too poor to go on our own, and we all went to missionary camp together. So I, I tell her she picked me up in a bus station. She can't deny that. And this is the product. This is five years ago, four years ago. Uh, one of the products of our wedding was the guy in the back room who has now four kids. And uh, so... It's been a great, productive life. 1966, my wife and I received a Smith, Klein, and French Fellowship. We spent three and a half months on a short term learning in Kajabi, much as Amy did learning in Kajabi, much as some of the others here learning in Kajabi. It was a taste of what God had wanted for our lives. Now, I'll go back a little bit. Uh, I was at Hopkins. Uh, I love this picture. You walk in the front door of Hopkins. If you haven't been there, it's worth going in just to walk in the front door in the rotundra. And there's this two or three-story high, two-story high picture, uh, statue of Christ. And, and underneath it says, give us your poor. You know? And it's a, it's a worthwhile experience. What, what has God done? Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Africa first. Uh, this I got out of an airline magazine. So put your penny what you get out. You can put all of the USA, all of China, all of Western Europe, India, and Argentina into Africa and have room left over. How many of you knew that? Come on, just... Ah, see, we got some better people than I am. But anyhow, I didn't know that. It's a huge continent. Uh, as I told some of you, I didn't care to work with children when I was young. And yet... After a while, it became the passion of my life. Now, the white kids are my grandkids, or my, and the black kids over in the corner over there are my two adopted boys who are now 17 and 20. Now, if you look at UNICEF's under five mortalities, nine out of the worst ten are in Africa. The only exception is Afghanistan. Nineteen out of the worst 20 are in Africa, and 35 of the worst 40 are in Africa. So that means a lot of kids are dying. How many pediatricians here? And how many pediatric nurses and all got your job cut out for you? This statistic can be changed with a little effort. 1976, uh, we moved to the Comoro Islands. We had three kids at the time. Uh, Comoro Islands were absolutely 100% Muslim. There was one known Christian in the island. I became, I tell people, I became the chief of surgery and the chief of obstetrics and gynecology in a 350-bed hospital. 
Now, the thing I don't immediately tell them is that there are only two doctors in the hospital. I had 150 beds. He had 200 beds, and that was it. And uh, it was a great proving ground. You, you could prove the Lord by the fact that much of what you did, you had to do for, after reading in a book. And uh, that was very threatening in many ways. 1977, after we were moved out of the Comore Islands, we moved across to Kajabi Hospital. At that time, there was two surgeons, one family practitioner, and about 80 or 90 beds. Uh, between 1977 and 1982, I was a general general surgeon. I loved taking out people's stomach. I loved fixing hernias. I loved fixing fistulas. I, I, it was just a wonderful time. And then in 1982, as I told some of you earlier, uh, we made a casual visit to Caggiato. And at Caggiato, uh, the nurse took us around on the tour, and this is the last room we walked into. We walked into the room. All these little kids were standing on the sides, and there were crutches all over the floor. And the nurse took us outside, and she said, uh, can you help us? Can you help us? Now, the setting in 1982, there was nearly no care for the disabled in Kenya, especially for those that were poor. Uh, I had no experience and huge limitations. Visiting surgeons, books, evolving experience, and lots of mistakes were my biggest teachers. And I, I could tell you, I, I can remember many of my mistakes. But, there, you know, I, I tell people, if, you know, and we'll talk about this later, if you have 100 kids with hydrocephalus and you don't do anything, you don't make any personal mistakes other than you made a choice not to try. And if you take and you look at the life of Abraham, when the three angels come to meet him and they stand up on the hill and they say, we're going to take out Sodom and Sodom. And he says, you're not going to do it if there's 50, are you? And he says, no, won't do it if there's 50. And he takes it all the way down to 10. And he says, would you do it if there's 10? He says, won't do it if there's 10. But what, what I'm basically saying is that some effort in some situations, is better than no effort at all if the patient's going to not do well. What about sub-Saharan Africa? All these countries listed are part of sub-Saharan Africa. Nearly all of them, not all of them, but nearly all of them have nothing for the disabled unless you're very wealthy. Uh, when we went to Kajabi and started working with disabled children, one of the things that we knew is that mothers would not bring their children to us. So we began 15 mobile clinics. We went out and did pre-op evaluations. We scheduled patients at the clinic, and we brought them in. Some of them came uh, five and six hours to be at our hospital. 1984, I made a visit on the coast to Lamu. I think this next one, that star... Uh, 100% Muslim island. This was a little girl I saw walking down the street. She had no muscles in her legs hardly. She used the muscles in her arms to walk. I never saw another patient like that for the next 20 years probably. And then I was in a major shopping mall in Nairobi and some guy came walking down with his arms on his feet. There was a growth in need as we began caring for these people you know, we first, if we were okay, we'd do polio and we'd do a few club feet. But the mothers would go out and say, Somebody can, something can be done for your disabled children now. And they would begin bringing patients in. Some of which we could help and some of which we said we couldn't help. Polio and orthopedics, uh, my mentors, Bill Barnett, Joe Stiles, Dan Topple, took me and groomed me. Now, Joe Stiles is standing downstairs in the hall. He's a retired orthopedist, just as a volunteer helping today, helper today. Uh, but these were people who realized it would be a long, long, long time before there was enough specialty care in Africa. Recently, I spoke at a CMDA meeting at uh, Eastern Carolina University, and there was an obstetrician there that uh, I talked a little bit with, and I said, uh, do you know that for the, to have the, the ratio of obstetrician to patient that we have in the United States in Kenya, it would only take about 200 years. So you must understand the magnitude of the need. And sometimes the specialists will come along and teach you their skills, and you can do something. Uh, 
with this, in 1998, uh, we went to Nairobi Hospital, which is one of the major hospitals, did some teaching, and we said we reported on having done 279 operations on over 1,000 children with polio. And that was the stage of what, where we were. Children with cleft lips and palates began to come, and one of, my, one of the young men that was in medical school when I was an intern uh, was now older. He was an ENT doctor. Uh, he, I, he said, could I help you in any way? I said, how about coming out and doing cleft lips? He said, I've never done a cleft lip before. And so he brought some people out of the University of Virginia who taught him how to do cleft lips. Uh, that man just came back from Sudan this last week having done a few cleft lips. His teams have done 13, 1,400 cleft lips in the last several years. Children with Burns contractures began to come. This uh, lady here, in the young lady here on the, this side, uh, is from a, a closed country. Uh, there is not a plastic surgeon in her country. There's not a plastic surgeon in the four areas right around her. Uh, this is the type of thing you see because they had no access to care. Now, as far as reputation became, Kajabi became known as a center. Uh, increasing number of specialists began to come, like Joe Stiles downstairs, to teach us a little bit. Lewis Carter came and taught us how to do plastic surgery. Uh, Jim came and taught us a bit about doing cleft lips. Uh, a variety of people came and would teach you just a little bit more. And the work grew. Kajabi Hospital eventually committed 18 beds to disabled children. Uh, they didn't like getting into that subspecialty. The one thing they did like is that we had money to pay for them, and that made us a little bit more welcome in that hospital. Uh, but we were outgrowing our bed capacity, and we began looking elsewhere. Now, that little young lady down the corner uh, that came out to help us for a little bit, I delivered her. She graduated from Vanderbilt Medical School after being a Rhodes Scholar for a while. She's an intern in Boston now. And this was Bethany Cripple Children's Center, now known as the Cure Hospital. Uh, we had 30 beds two operating rooms, an OPD, and a staff committed to taking care of these disabilities. It was a hospital focused on orthopedic care, orthopedic rehab. And uh, we thought we were just in heaven when we moved across into this new hospital with 30 beds after coming out of 18 beds. And we were soon full. Uh, in 2004, we had begun having so many children with spina bifida and hydrocephalus that they suggested that we move back across the street and begin something new. And soon Bethany Kids was doing not only hydrocephalus and spina bifida, but was also doing hypospadias and imperfect anus and omphaloceles and a whole variety of other abnormalities. This was the entrance. We, we had several months to clean it up and paint it and get some children's colors on it. It was all brown before. We had several months to make it kids-friendly. And we had several months to try and take nurses who were absolutely key to our work and locate ones that wanted to work with disabled kids. And somebody asked me earlier today, uh, how, how do you go to 15 clinics? You don't. You send your nurses. You invest them with knowledge and the, the understanding of what to, they can do and what they can't do. Uh, this is something that uh, was painted in our wall. I, t I used to take people on tours, and we'd go to this picture of Jesus and all the different children. I'd say, you're entering the kingdom of children. Jesus is king here. Please treat us king children with compassion, kindness, gentleness, and love. Sign God. And I told him, we walked in here one morning, and this was on the wall. And I'd say, only kidding. But, I mean, it was what we were trying to do is change the psyche of our, of our staff, all of us, to make kids welcome and to make mothers who had already borne the shame of having a disabled child, sometimes abandoned by their, their families, their husbands, they're all alone, trying to help them to know that we were interested in helping them. The number of children arriving with hydrocephalus continued to grow. This is Daisy. Daisy's in heaven waiting for me to come up and join her one day. Uh, she was special to me. And uh, she came. and we, we were helped her for a while. And this is a collection of children, everything from kids in wheelbarrows that are brought in at refugee camps to a variety of other places.
Most kids came with spina bifida, uh, probably folic acid deficiency related, sometimes related to a fungus, some other things that they came began to grow. One day in 2005, we had these children all with what was called a frontal encephalocele. Uh, one of the nurse, two of the neurosurgeons came from the States. They said, we didn't know you had these here. They don't have them in the States hardly. But this is what happened to our numbers of children coming with hydrocephalus and spina bifida. Now, I can quickly say that I, I fortunately worked myself out of a job in a manner of speaking. I had, there's a full-time pediatric neurosurgeon there, a professor from Pittsburgh and Wisconsin. Uh, I don't have to worry about them anymore at that location. Uh, I will quickly add that people say, well, you know, working in the third world, you're going to get a lot of problems. And I said, we, we did 504 shunts between 2004 and 2007, had a 7% infection rate. That's comparable to the United States. Comparable to the United States. And I think there's two things. One is you, you do take particular care with regard to infection, and you do things to prevent it, and you bathe it all in an extra huge dose of prayer. And uh, I used to, when, we, when our twins were in first grade, they'd go up to, to first grade and they had a prayer time. This was a Christian school. And, and they'd pray for my patients. And God did well. Now, this was tra- done while training residents, some of whom went on to do their own operations. Uh, they were all performed under the supervision of a general surgeon or a pediatric surgeon. Rarely, rarely a neurosurgeon. This is Kajabi as it is today, or as it was at least a year ago. But we're growing. Uh, surgical changes in Kajabi, we had in 77, we had two surgeons. Uh, in 1987, we did 2,389 surgical procedures. Last couple of years, we've done 9,000 operations. The second busiest hospital in, in Kenya. This is what we have today. Now, you can look at the left side of the specialist, but look at the right side of the opportunity of training people. One of these pediatric surgery fellows in the last month has gone to Addis Ababa, and he's gone with one of our pediatric surgeons to begin a program that's not there. It's not there. Uh, the plastic surgeon came to us as a medical student and is now a plastic surgeon there, a Kenyan. You can read that. We have now, rather than two operating rooms, we have eight operating rooms. Now, in 2010, the president of Kenya was invited to open our new operating room. And because his health was all, not all that great, he didn't want to climb stairs. And we don't have an elevator and we don't have an escalator like this church does. We've got to make this into a hospital. Uh, <laughs> so... The only floor, the only ward he could go to was the pediatric ward. And we set up a eight-bed ward, put all, a variety of disabled children in there, and we walked him in and said, this is the only hospital of its kind between Cairo and Cape Town. Is that true? I honestly believe that. I don't think there's anything else like that. Now, our patients came from a variety of locations, I'm sure you all know this map. Nah, I don't think you all know this map. But our, one of our first patients came from up here in Senegal. It was a Wolof, an unreached people group. And World Vision wanted to send that patient to us. And we said, no, there's got to be something between us and Kenya. And we looked for a year, and we couldn't find him. They got visas. Uh, they were pretty welcome. I mean, they came from. I'm not positive of that. Uh, you can. Most of us can come into Nairobi Airport and get a visa right there. Um, but they came from a variety of places. Thank God, some of them had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ until they got to our hospital. So we had a double blessing. We could not only help them with their medical needs, we could help them with their spiritual needs. Why did they come all that way? If we had a lot of time, I'd make you answer that question, but I won't today. They came because there was no care available for most of the rest of Africa for the disabled. 
Appropriate training is unavailable in most of Africa and too fragmented. Now we've got orthopedists in this group. We've got pediatricians in this group. We've got general surgeons in this group. I don't know. Pediatric uh, uh, foot surgeon in this group. But we didn't have any... We, we could hardly find people who could meld a cleft lip with a hypospadias, with a burn contracture, with a whole variety of things. And so they just didn't do it. And most of them were just too poor. And we tried to, to make it available to all these other people so that they could come and without worrying about the fact that they had to pay a lot of money. What's it cost to put a shunt in? We get our shunts free. The organization gives our front shunts free uh, I think they bought into the idea when I wrote and said, where can we find inexpensive shunts? He said, how many shunts are you doing? And I, we wrote back and he said, why don't we just give them to you free? And I think we're taking about 50, 60 a year. Now we're doing about 500 a year. But they continue to give them to us free. It cost us about $250 to put in a shunt. Uh, neurosurgeons, this is only one example. Uh, Ethiopia has five for 80 million people. They have one neurosurgeon putting in shunts for hydrocephalus in that country. Uh, if you look down a little bit, you find DRC, Congo, one, one neurosurgeon for 66 million people. So if we invest all the needs for hydrocephalics or spina bifida into the neurosurgeon, nobody gets it done. Now, there was a similar lack of orthopedists and plastic surgeons and ENT doctors and physiatrists and special nurses and orthopedic technologists and people like that and many other medical workers. There just wasn't, there's just not much in Africa. What else happened? Uh, for Kijabi, we began expanding the education program. We went from enrolled nurses to registered nurses to interns to orthopedic surgeons, to general surgeons, to pediatric surgeons, and so on. So our, our training just blossomed. We went from two general surgeons and one family practitioner to a mass of people with the permission by the country and by the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and Southern Africa to do the training, which was a great thing for us to be able to look at the rest of Africa. Pan-African Association of Christian Surgeons, if you, haven't, if you don't know them, Go visit them downstairs. They're worth meeting. Uh, the College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa all came about in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, what would I propose for the future? There's a global shortage of 4.3 million health workers. One million of those are in Africa. There's a big, huge need. This shows you the areas of the most desperate need for medical workers, the orange ones. Africa bears 25% of the global burden of disease and has 2% of the work workers. Now, in case you think I'm waving the flag of Africa, I'm waving the flag of Africa. In the midst of all this need, the medical need is a huge spiritual need too. The uh, U.S. has 313 million population. Africa has a billion. Africa has less than 1% of the number of surgeons in the U.S. So all of you surgeons, you've got to go to Africa. <laughs> uh, medically, what would help Africa? Uh, now, this is the question I've asked myself, and I'll tell you a conclusion toward the end of this. Uh, if we can't get enough plastic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons and ENT doctors and all these other specialists, what can we do? Uh, would or could Africa develop a special or unique training program to meet many of the needs of the developing world? Now, let, let, me, let me back up a little bit. I could say this for nurses. I can say this for pediatricians. I can say it for most of the other areas. Education of the disabled, I could say. Uh, we need a, a maverick, a hybrid. We need something that's different than the sophistication of what we do in North America. We need, you know, some of the surgeons that come out of the training programs today are really threatened by doing something outside their area of expertise. And when you say, well, here's a book. 
Uh, why don't you just read that book and come do that case? That's very threatening. But let me tell you, that was threatening for me too. When I first did my first club foot, I had a book sitting right beside the table. And I would periodically say to the nurse, turn the page. You can testify to that. And I made a lot of mistakes. But we were beginning. Uh, what might a rehab surgeon look like? That's what I say, basic surgical skills, trained to perform maybe just, just 10 to 15 operations. Uh, operations from a variety of backgrounds. I, I tell people, and I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, I mean, with regard to putting in a shunt for hydrocephalus, I tell them, with a smile on my face, I say, any idiot can put in a shunt. And they can do a lot of other things, too. And maybe I shouldn't use that. We'll forget that. Anyhow. Uh, so they need operation of a, demand, a domain of a variety of specialties. And my estimate is that they can take care of 80 to 85% of the needs of the disabled, the surgical needs of the disabled. They can't do it, though, without nurses and without people to put the brace on them and get them walking. They can't do it without therapists. Uh, they, can, they can do a mediocre job, but they need a team. What operations, I won't read through this, but these are a variety of operations that I estimated. And I go back and revise this regularly. Uh, I've been going to a, a close country for six years. Uh, some of the people there, uh, it was, they, they'd never graduated a medical school class, but we were trying to teach them how to do things. Uh, one of the, uh, uh, some of the young people picked it up very easily. They've graduated from medical school. One of them now does nearly all my shunts for me. Uh, she's a, she finished her internship, and she has had one or two years of, of experience now. Uh, she can do many burn contractures. She can rotate flaps. She can do a whole bunch of things. But, you know, and I tell, I tell people, I, I often now say to her, particularly with a shunt or certain burns, I will help her get started, and I say, I'm going out and have a cup of coffee. And what I'm basically saying to her, I believe in you. You can do this. And she follows him up. It's great. Anyhow. Would one need to complete a residency in all these subspecialties? All these specialties? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I tell people putting a cleft lip together is a dot to dot. And you and I learned that when we were two or three years old. Now, this is Sudan state-of-the-art. You don't know Warren Cooper. This is, this is the operating room. Now, if the bugs were really small, they could get through the screen and get inside. Now, in that operating room, occasionally we had a, had a little incident come that interrupted your operation. The bombers flew over and everybody went to the caves. We left one lady on the bed with a spinal in and said, we'll be back soon. And, uh, but that, this, this is state-of-the-art. And when I first went there, about 1999, and I fixed a club foot, and I fixed a child with hypospadias, they said, we haven't had anything done like this in 20 years. This is one day in Dadaab refugee camp back in 2005. This is the type of patients. Okay. Interdependence, back to the team concept. Doctors can't do it alone. Nurses can't do it alone. Orthopedic technologists, I don't know what you call them, but prosthetists can't do it alone. PTs can't do it alone. We need one another. We need one another. And we need to, the concept of, you know, we'll do it together. And nobody's going to, you know, doctors like to get the glory. But, we, you know, we need, to, need one another. Uh, we need doctors who recognize the necessity of extraordinary surgical sterile technique. And that's tough in some countries. And good tissue handling. We need an operating room staff that can work together. And we need a nursing staff trained to screen and do follow-up and do a very important part of it. PTs, OTs, and prosthetists. We only have one prosthetist in the room. I give her a little extra attention because there's not many. And this is one of the schools I, we go to. This is Joytown. It has 320 disabled children. 320 disabled children. We've got a staff there now. we got one of the lady that's in charge of teaching them how to do clean intermittent catheterization for a spina bifida has spina bifida. And uh, now she's married. 
She has a little normal boy with no spina bifida. And she's a great evangelist and has seen about 60 people come to the Lord in the last year. Are you working outside your comfort zone? Yet? Yet? Um, in today's world, what Christian would have the audacity to say that he or she must work within their comfort zone? Don't have to. Be threatened. Give God a chance. I mean, if we work in our comfort zone, we don't need God hardly. Now, uh, reflection. Caring for disabled children can mean thousands of children coming to the Lord and thousands living a better quality of life. Africa and most of the developing world have nearly no care for the disabled. Now, I'm not sure. I wrote the other day, I said to Mark Newton, Mark Newton's uh, a pediatric anesthesiologist. He's crazy. He's a wonderful guy to work with. I said, Mark, do you have anything I want you want me to share with these people? He said, uh, Dick, have a good talk at the meeting. Tell them that their golf score will not get them a good department in heaven. And young, and young medical doctors will jump off the cliff can change the world. Young medical nurses who can jump off a cliff may change the world. Uh, and so on. He went on and he says, when you speak in Louisville, there will be... This is a second email. Uh, some young doctors who need to be challenged and forgetting the calling. We, we somehow super-spiritualize that I have to be called. I mean, if God fell through the roof for some of these people, they'd think nothing. They didn't get that call. Um, better finish reading this. They may wait forever after their BMW. This is Mark's words. The college fund, the new pool, and then when they are in their 80s, hear the call. You can get them to make their plunge and have fun. No regrets. Now, Mark was a very, very successful anesthesiologist doing open hearts for kids in, in Denver. Three kids, three kids, I think it was three kids, came out and adopted two more. Uh, his advice to you is good advice if God's calling you. If you turn off the, the speaker, you'll never hear him directing you. Now, Earlier this week, last weekend, friends came to visit, and they brought five trunks for us of our memorabilia. I picked up a notebook, and I opened it up, and I found this dated March 1st, 2000. And if you looked up, it's the rehabilitation curriculum. Rehabilitation curriculum. Much of what I began thinking about again and again and again. It's all written, you know. This is a very rough draft, very poorly done, but a curriculum is 12 years old, going on 13. And I said to myself, if it's 12 years old and we saw 7,000 people come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ last year, I potentially missed 84,000 people being invited into the kingdom of God because I've let it drop for 12 years. I think that's it. Do you have questions? Yes, sir. How, how many physical therapists have come out to help you? And you've been uh, very don't you? We have, we have an OT, an occupational therapist, and a physical therapist who are both Kenyans. And we had a one from uh, Alabama who came out when we first opened the Cure Hospital. And he, most of our physical therapists in Africa are not taught to put on plaster and not taught to work with uh, club feet and Ponsetti method and things like that. But they've been a, a huge asset. I mean, they would travel with us to clinics. They'd take off cash. They'd f help do a whole variety of things. And then they would get them started after they got, they got back. You do. You do. I mean, there's, there's a, I, we could talk more about that. Yes, sir. Which kids? <laughs> uh, hypospadias, probably 10 days because we leave the catheter in at least seven days. Uh, hydrocephalics, we can get them out. A very few of them in three days. Sometimes we keep them five to seven days, depending at times how far they live away. I mean, some of them live five hours away. Uh, club feet, three or four days post-op normally. 
when I'm in a closed country, I didn't mention this, I go, I go to a country in which uh, there are about three and a half million people. When we first went to that country, we were told by a relatively well-informed uh, person there was not one Christian in the entire country. And the people traveled sometimes three and a half days by road to get there. Had one man carried his son ten days to get to it for care. Those we keep a little bit longer. <laughs> but um, average club foot, probably five to seven days. Burn contractures, longer, because we have to change dressing, make sure the, the skin grafts have taken. Um, Uh, I try and take my heart out and lay it in the table. And uh, sometimes I let the people working with me help choose. When I went made rounds one day, and we, we had a lot of patients, so this was their first day, and I, I came to this child that was about five years old with a clubbed foot. And I said, I don't, I, we've got so many cases this time, I don't think we can do him this time. And my, my, nurse, my medical students... We're standing there, and, and it was unusually quiet, unusually quiet. And I said, um, can you tell me more? And he said, this man walked for 10 days with his child to get here. I said, I think we can slip him in. I think we can slip him in. And, you know, the, some of them come so late that it's, it's really tough. Uh, sometimes you say, who's going to be here in, in two or three years to do one? And I don't have the answers to all. I, I try and be ex- extra sensitive. I go to that country now. The, the young lady that helps me do the club feet and the hydrocephalics and all, I say to her, you know, she does all the follow-up. And she just, uh, you know, you, you try and get – she does all the triaging. Uh, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. Questions? Yes. Uh, they carry them if they have any. And uh, yes, I do. You know, you know it's very interesting. Uh, the country I go to has no postal system, absolutely no postal system. So uh, you say, where do you live? And they give you the town. Now, the question I can ask now that I couldn't ask 10 years ago was, do you have a cell phone? Everybody has a cell phone. Everybody has a cell phone. And our follow-up, and the way we get them back for care is cell phones. And uh, try never ask them if they got any money. I mean, some don't, and some do. And uh, I tell you know very specifically if there's somebody particular, I say must have an operation. If they can't find the money, I'll find the money. And, uh, what does what does that mean? That's not like I'm really you know uh, 150 bucks, something like that. And uh, I just thinking. Uh, I wrote one time, and I was doing spina bifida, and my friend uh, Ben Worf is in Boston. I said, Ben, what would it cost to do a, a spina bifida there? He said, well, the operation would probably cost about $50,000, and the intensive care would probably cost another $50,000. I didn't feel so bad in that our average cost was $500, but anyhow. Yes? I have a question. Do you have a prosthetic center in the Kijabi Hospital? Where do you, have, where do you send kids with amputees to be able to get an artificial limb? Cure has a prosthetic center. It does make some artificial limbs. Uh, we do a lot of bracing and a lot of plastic AFOs. Okay. So you have a bracing limb shop. Kind of. Yeah, we do, but it's not to the quality that you would she would bring to it. <laughs> uh, we, the plastic AFOs was taught us how to do it by a physiatrist from Michigan. And we, we'd always made these long metal steel. We don't have any good aluminum. AFOs and many. I guess what I want to ask, are you working with the Jaipur for uh, There's a Jaipur project in Nairobi that will make a below-the-knee, for, and if you come in in the morning, you can walk out with it in the afternoon, free, free, the Rotary Club sponsored. If it's above the knee, you have to come back the next day. Yeah. And it's still free, still free. They have these funny-looking Indian feet. And our African people, you know, our, our colors are a little bit off, but who cares? Who cares?
Yes, sir. Pretty well. They're, I mean, they're pretty much available. Most, a lot of the IVs come out of Europe. Some of them come out of, in, in Kenya, in Kenya. Unbeknownst to us, some of those patients are sent next door to the, to the pharmacist to bring back the IVs. Amelia, do you have anything you want to say about work there? I. I hmm. The young doctor in the closed country and our nurses in Kajabi all, after, our, after we do a spina bifida operation, all do bladder evaluations. They use a feeding tube because that's the only thing we've got that's small enough to do it. They train mothers who've never been out of their village how to do clean intermittent catheterization at time. Uh, we could go, that's a lot of detail. Comments? We do some adductor releases. I, I, I do even less Achilles tendons than I used to do. Uh, we, I think I've thrown more out of balance than I'd like to admit. Jay, do you have any comments about CP surgery? Jay's an orthopedic. Not, did you do any rhizotomies? I didn't. Uh, I, I will quickly say that uh, Leland Albright, the guy that took over when I left, uh, does some rhizotomies. Uh, not necessarily for CP, some, I'm sure sometimes for CP. His, his special interest was motion problems. Nope. <laughs> Just stretching. Can't stretch here. <laughs> yes, sir. Boy, I, I don't know that we've had that question before. I would quickly come back and say to you, we're beginning an oncology service at Kajabi Hospital, uh, which we'd never, we've never had before and didn't have when I was there. Uh, I was told by my mentor, who's now 95 years old, he said, uh, at this is one stage of history, he said, anything you can do here is probably better and can be done in the country elsewhere. I didn't understand that at a time, and it's no longer true, but I think that, you know, if, if a doctor who can do a C-section, can do an ectopic pregnancy, can t handle tissue a little bit, and if he says, hey, I'm prepared to put in shunts, I can, I'm, I'm prepared to teach him to do it. I mean, there's a choice. Either they get it by a non-specialist, they don't get it at all frequently. Uh, let me read you a couple of verses, and uh, I'm supposed to do this at the beginning, but uh, you know these, these verses at the end of the book of Matthew. It says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We know that verse. But flip back sometime to Matthew 24, uh, 14. It says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And, anybody remember the end of that sentence? Then the end will come. Then the end will come. Our role, and I'm going to say, in taking care of disabled kids, but every other branch, is to bring back the king. And part of our role is leading people to a vital living relationship with Jesus Christ. When I, I, I am not an evangelist. I may sound like it. I, I can get up and say these things. But I tell you, when we, sw- we, we match ourselves with a team of nurses and physiatrists and pediatricians and chaplains and disciples, I mean, we're a mighty force. This church, I seriously doubt, sees 7,000 people come to the Lord each year. I won't even ask what the budget is. I mean, that would be frightening. I couldn't even pay the electricity here. But, you know, we can do it. Now, uh, we only have about 50 countries in Africa that need a program for disabled children. We do it. Thank you for coming. I think my time is up. God bless you. And I appreciate. If you have other questions, we're here. If if any of you are interested in hydrocephalus and spina uh, hydrocephalus, this is a homemade. Uh, uh, video made on the combined team concept of caring and operating for hydrocephalus. In the back are uh, a few brochures and my cards. If you want to write, I can send you. There's a few booklets on female genital mutilation. And if there's not any back there and you want to write me, I can send you some. Not written by me, but written by a lady I work with in another country.